When you think about the future, how do you feel? When you think about the things to come and what will happen, what emotions kind of typify the way that you feel at that moment? I just spent this last week um, at a church planting conference in Brisbane in a room full of what I'd call testosterone-filled males and females who are keen to see (laughs) the Word of God go out. Everyone's excited. They're like, church planting, this is brilliant. Let's start churches all over the world. It's like, there's no mountain high enough, no valley deep enough. They're through, right? It was a really encouraging week. And for some of us, we're like that about life, aren't we? Life's incredibly exciting. The future is incredibly exciting. We've got plans for our lives, careers to progress in, relationships to explore, families to grow and enjoy, life to live, adventures to be had. The future, for many of us, is exciting. But for others of us, the future can be incredibly scary and fearful. Second half of my week, I went from this conference, sort of seeing people so excited, like, yeah, let's go, to visiting my grandparents who lived about, about two hours south. I hadn't seen them for a long while. And I went next door to their neighbor's place just to say hi to him. And my grandparents are about 88. Uh, and my next, the next, their next door neighbor, his name's Neville, great guy. I remember growing up and visiting old Nev. He used to pull these tricks on us. Anyway, he um, did this awesome magic stuff. And, and I went to visit him just to say hi. And I hadn't been there in about seven years. And uh, he said, I was like, how are you going, Nev? And he's like, yeah, all right. He said, yesterday was our 70th wedding anniversary. I'm like, 70 years. He's like, yeah, I took a card and flowers and a present to Sylvia, his wife, who's in a nursing home with dementia. And he said, the only issue is that today she won't remember yesterday. And his face just dropped. He was incredibly sad, incredibly nervous about the future. He's like, he said, I just don't know what to do anymore. When we arrived, he's sitting in a chair all by himself in his house, talking to no one. For some of us, the future is incredibly scary. That's funnily enough, the same things that scare us. Careers that can go pear-shaped. Relationships that tear us apart. Family that leaves or gets hurt the ups and downs of life and health. They're they're things that are in the future that really do give us anxiety. How do you view the future? What is it that causes your optimism or anxiety about the time that is to come? Have you ever thought through that? Now, I take it that all of us, if we could, would love to have an optimistic view of the future. Wouldn't we? If it could actually, if it was actually realistic, that the future was going to be great, we'd love that. I don't know many people are like, yeah, I'm really excited about the future sucking. Like, who does that? <laughs> no one, right? Even the pessimists are pessimistic because there's some form of realism about the future. They're like, I'm not sure this will work out. But if we knew the future would work out, if we could know that, well, that would be fantastic. But in order for that to be the case, In order for the future to be optimistic in any more than just wishful thinking, two requirements must be met. Two things. One, we need to have some sort of clarity about the future. The future must be knowable. Otherwise, it's just wishful thinking, right? And the second thing is that the future must be good if we're going to be optimistic about it. 
It's no good knowing that the future sucks and be like, well, that's great. No, two things must be met. We need to have some sort of certainty about the future and that future must be good. It seems to me the only other grounds we have for optimism is to predict it based on the past. And I think that's what lots of us do. And we take a look at where we are in life now, we kind of like, here I am in the present, here's how things are going. And we kind of look back to yesterday or last week and we're like, you know what, since last week things are looking better, things are on the up, there's a good trajectory, I'm positive. Or if it's the other way around, if, if today it's worse than it was two weeks ago, then we have a pessimistic view about the future. The problem with that view is, as we all know, life is like a roller coaster. It goes up and down. It has great moments and sad moments. And just because something's going well yesterday and better today doesn't mean it's going to go well tomorrow. But many of us are still happy to say things are looking up. What I want to put to you tonight is that there is only one way to have an optimistic view of the future that is more than merely wishful thinking. There's only one way to have an optimistic view of the future that is any more than wishful thinking. If that future is completely and ultimately controlled by someone good. If that future is completely and ultimately controlled by someone good. Last week, as we opened up the book of Hebrews and got into this book, we saw the claim that the author made about a man called Jesus. That this man was the one who created all things, who sustains all things, who perfectly reveals God to us. In fact, He is God to us. There is no more to reveal of God than meeting Jesus in the flesh. But what we said this week is that that same man, Jesus, is in control of the future as well. Have a look at Hebrews 2 verse 5. For he is not subjected to angels, the world to come that we are talking about. The writer of Hebrews here starts off this section talking about the world to come. And he says that God has not subjected to angels the world to come. Angels aren't in control of the world to come, but someone else is. And then he quotes Psalm 8. Now, Psalm 8 is really a song. It's a song from the history books of Israel shows that when God made the world, He put humanity in charge of the earth. Have a look with me, it's on the screen. We're going to read through Psalm 8 and understand it in its kind of context. It says this, When I observe your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man that you remember him? The son of man that you look after him. You made him a little less than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You made him Lord over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. The logic here goes that when God made the world, he put Adam and Eve and humankind as the ones who were to rule the world under God. Humanity were to look after the earth, fill the earth and subdue it was the command in Genesis 2. Fill the earth, look after the world that the sheep, the animals, the birds, the fish, all of them are brought to Adam one by one and he names them, we see, in the creation account. Humanity was to rule over creation as God ruled over them. That's how God set the world up. But here in Hebrews, the author applies humanity's rule of creation 
to the rule of the world to come, to the rule of the future. Do you see that? He is not subjected to angels, the world to come that we are talking about. And then he applies this psalm of Psalm 8. And he applies it to humanity, to man. Look at verse 8. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. Now, if I understand this right, what he's saying is that everything has been subjected to mankind, to a man. There is nothing that is not subject to this one. Now, if you're a thinking person, it doesn't take much to kind of work out that as, as we read that, it just doesn't seem to be true. As I look at the world around me, as I see the pictures of, of Syria and what humanity does, I recognize that there is no one in control of this world, no one good. Humanity, even as a whole, we're not doing a very good job of looking after one another, let alone the world that we live in. It's no wonder that people are anxious about the future when wars go off, when greed is so prevalent, when selfishness kind of typifies what we're about as a society. We inflict pain on one another, screwing up relationships. We suffer death. Surely this is not the way it's supposed to be. And if there's someone who's supposed to be in control of the present, it looks like they've left their post, doesn't it? Humanity simply does not rule ourselves or society or the world. Not the way God intended it to be done. And that's exactly what the author picks up. Look at verse 8. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to Him. Where is this man that the writer of Hebrews is applying this section to? Where is the one whom everything is subjected to? Well, he answers that in the next part of verse 9. So, as it is, verse 8, we do not yet see everything subjected to Him, but, verse 9, we do see Jesus. And then he starts applying everything the psalm says to Jesus. Watch this. Made lower than the angels for a short time, so that by God's grace He might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honour, because of His suffering and death. The writer of Hebrews is saying, Psalm 8, looking for mankind to be ruling the earth, is actually applied to Jesus. What it's talking about is applied to the one true man who lives, and His name is Jesus, the one true ruler of the world, the one who's in absolute control of everything that is. And here's a new part of information, and the future as well. This man is in control of the future. He was made lower than angels for a short time. In other words, he became human. His humanity is going to become important in a moment. But he was crowned with glory, raised from the dead, for taking God at His word, for obeying Him. And while we don't yet see everything subjected to Him, in other words, it doesn't look like He's in control of everything just yet, and I'll show you why in a second, we have seen Him, the author says. The accounts of history are filled with the events of His life. We've seen what He did. He died, yes, but if the accounts are right, He, he rose from the dead. He defeated death and rose again. It's not being crowned with glory and honour is. Jesus is the ultimate ruler of this world and the ultimate ruler of the future. He's the one that Psalm 8 was talking about. There is nothing that is not subject to Him. 
no person, no power, no plan, past, present and future. All things are subject to Him. That means even death itself. He is ultimately and completely in control of everything. Do you know what that means? The claim of the Bible is that Jesus holds your future in His hands. He holds everything that will happen to you and to me in the palm of His hand. Now, if that's true, surely Jesus is the most relevant person for us that we've ever come across, is He not? But if that is true, if He is the one who is in control of all things and even of the future, then why is the world still in the state it's in? Why do we still die? Why are there still wars? Why did He die if all things are subject to Him? And it makes you ask the question, maybe He's in control, but is He actually good? Well, to understand that, we need to dig a bit deeper, do a bit more hard work to understand how this passage fits together. Because, you see, what is going on is an invisible battle. The world is the way that it is because there is more going on than you and I realise. There's an invisible battle taking place all over the world and its effects are more horrific than any world war we've ever had, than all the world wars put together, but we don't see it. See, we generally seem to have, as a society, and even as just people, a naturalistic view of the world. That is a view of the world that says, all there is is what I can see and feel and touch and, and experience. There's nothing else, there's, there's nothing beyond that. God is a supernatural, that's above. We don't see that, we can't talk about that. We can only talk about that which is natural, which is here. But the Bible tells us something very different. God is real. Evil exists. The reason the world is the way that it is is because you and I and every other child of Adam has chosen to listen to someone other than God. We don't realise what's actually going on. We don't realise the invisible battle that we are in the midst of right now, that at this moment, there is a war happening. Have a look at 1 John 5, and hear what John, one of Jesus' closest followers, says. 1 John 5, verse 19, The whole world, says John, is under the sway of the evil one. Now, if we hold a naturalistic worldview, then we miss this. We miss what's really going on. We miss the battle that's happening right now. And we miss why the world is the way it is. See, in Genesis 3, we see the beginnings of the broken world that we're amongst now. Man and woman choose to listen to someone other than God. And in that account, he's depicted as a serpent. His name is Satan. His simple task at that point was to invite Adam and Eve to doubt God's goodness. He's not good. He doesn't want your best. And because of Satan's work and mankind's listening to him, death and brokenness entered the world. That's why the world is broken, because we've failed to listen to the good God who made it. Jesus describes Satan in John uh, 
chapter 8, like this. He is a murderer from the beginning and has not stood in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he's a liar and the father of lies. We, we tend to think that the satanic and demonic are only involved in some super crazy stuff where people get thrown across rooms and froth at the mouth and kind of crazy things happen. We're like, whoa, that's satanic. But at that point, Satan's won by thinking that he's not involved in the normal, natural part of life, which the Bible describes him as. God's Word shows us that Satan is intimately and closely connected with all of us. He knows what's going on. In the plain and ordinary experience of life, we are being affected by one who's trying to spew forth lies. That's his role. God's not real. He, he doesn't want your best. It's okay to have a bit of fun. It won't really hurt you. You've been very bad. You, you, he can't forgive you. He whispers these lies to us day by day. He's never responsible for the way we act to them. He's not causing us to, to believe His lies or act on His lies, but lying is what He does. A friend of mine explained this illustration to me. I think that's really helpful. If you get like a, a grand piano, you know, the big ones with the roof that opens up at the top, all right, and they've got the long strings inside, pianos have got strings in them, and there's a little hammer that hits the string and makes the noise. If you get, if you get a grand piano and you get up close to the piano and you start humming really loudly the exact pitch of one of the strings. After a little while, that string, without you even touching it, without the hammer hitting the string, will start to vibrate. Just that one. It'll start to vibrate because you're at the same pitch and it just starts all by itself to vibrate and sing the same note. That's exactly what Satan does. He never touches us. He just gets up real close and starts humming that one thing. The one thing that he knows we really want to sing out and do, but we know we shouldn't. And before long, we find ourselves going, yeah, I want to sing that too. And so we walk away from God's goodness and listen to someone other than him. You won't surely die, says to Adam and Eve. The fruit look good. Man, we want to eat this thing. And to become like God, determining good and evil, then that's attractive. And so, at that moment, they sang. They sang a different song to the one God had given them to sing. And from that moment, from the moment they disobeyed their good God and played to the tune of someone other than Him, death entered the world. You reject the life-giving God. You reject the God that sustains life and holds life in His hands. How do you think that's going to go for you? The human rulers that were intended to rule the world were taken off the throne. And Satan then ruled the world by spewing forth lies to a society that doesn't even believe He exists. Three times the Bible describes Satan as the ruler of this world. I know we've said that Jesus is in control, 
And Jesus is the one who is in control of all things. But what we see here is that at this present time, while he's in control, Satan is free to hum. But not for long. John 12, uh, 2 Corinthians 4 and Ephesians 2, if you want to write them down. That's where you'll see that, that, that Satan is called the ruler of this world. But I just want to look at one of them. Um, Ephesians 2, verse 1. It's on the screen. Paul says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient. Did you see that? He is working in the disobedient. Satan is here, he's amongst us all the time, just in the natural part of life, humming that tune, getting us to listen to him rather than God. So listen to how Paul, a bit later on in the letter of Ephesians, tells us to to respond. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 11, Put on the full armour of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. You see that? Tactics. It's not like Satan's walking around just with the same approach for everyone. He knows you. He knows where you want to jump. He knows what areas that you're most susceptible to reject God and and to come and, and follow Him or someone else. And that's what He's trying to do. He knows you. He's got tactics. He has a plan. Wouldn't surprise me if He's got like a little portfolio on every single person in the world. I know you. I know how to speak to you and bring you out. He, he's not dumb. Verse 12, For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. This is why you must take up the full armour of God, so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Why is the world the way it is? Because Satan is humming forth his lies, and we are listening to him. His work is not possessing people and taking control so we can't do things. No, no, we are morally responsible for all the choices that we make. And all Satan is doing is suggesting... God's not there. He's not good. There's a better way for your life. You'd be far happier if you just stopped listening to that God stuff. Every single one of us has taken the bait. By our own desire, we have walked away from God. You've done it. I've done it. Satan's aim in all of this is to be able to accuse us before God. He's called the accuser. Revelation 12, you want to check it out later. On that final day, what, what, what Satan wants to do is to accuse us and say, this one is mine, God. He listened to me, not you. I won. He listened to me. He followed me. <laughs> I'm the king of the world. And to accuse us before God, sinner, rejecter of the true and living God. And he'd be right, wouldn't he? For every single one of us, we have not treated God as God in all of our lives. That's why he's called the accuser, because he will rightly accuse us of rejecting God on that day. And the result of rejecting the life-giving God is no life at all. Death, judgment, hell. 
as we think about the future and our view of it and what it holds for us, it would do us good to reflect on the words of Jesus. Listen to what he says in Matthew 10. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Let me read it again. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We so often focus on the physical, on how our pain is going and, and the persecution that happens around us. Jesus says, don't worry about that. There is a far greater battle going on. Now, I know to many of us, rejecting God might seem petty and small. <laughs> you know, we look at it and we go, like, oh, why does it really that matter that much? And that's because the only one we're listening to is the one who wants to destroy us in hell. Satan doesn't whisper that to us, does he? He doesn't whisper what future he has in store. He just hums the tune that, oh, we love to follow. The pains of life, whether they be emotional or physical or relational or financial loss or even death itself, Jesus says all those pains pale into insignificance when you see the reality of eternity, the reality of the death that we deserve for rejecting God, the, the consequences of turning our backs on Him. Why is the world the way that it is? Because of me and you. Because we choose to reject this God. We choose to think we have a better way of living in the world. And we follow that way and make a mess of the world that we're in. You, me, and every son and daughter of Adam before us. It's why the world is in a mess. Because we listen to Satan, the epitome of evil. That's why death is our end because it's the just and right consequences of rejecting this life-giving God. So then what's with this Jesus? What does He have to do with death? How can He somehow fix this problem, the one who is supposedly in control of the past, the present and the future? Well, funnily enough, it's in His death, His visible death, that we can have certainty of the future. His death that really happened, that was seen, because Jesus' death was not His end, but the beginning. Do you notice 2 verse 9? But we do see Jesus, made lower than the angels for a short time, so that by God's grace, you ready? He might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honour because of His suffering and death. Jesus' death was... Not like every other death in the history of humanity. Every other death in the history of humanity was deserved for us rejecting God. Each person who died deserved it, but not Jesus. He always treated God as His God. But when He died, the death He faced was not mine, but yours. Not His, but ours. That's why Jesus had to become human. So that He could die as a substitute in our place, as a real human, flesh and blood, like you and me. If Jesus is not human, then His death is not efficient. It's not effective. 
Hebrews 2, verse 14. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all of their lives by the fear of death. Do you see that? By becoming a man, a human, and dying in our place, verse 10 tells us he brought many sons to glory. Those who trust in him can say that their their death has been united and caught up with Jesus. He has died it for us. He destroyed the power of death, not by removing death, but by absorbing its consequences for us. You ever had those little silicon pouches that you get in like, um, you know, the flat bread packets, whatever you call those, those kind of Mexican, I don't know, flat bread, right? You know how you, you get that bread and there's a little, and they have these like silicon pouches in them. They always annoy me because like you want to put the whole packet in the microwave, but you can't because there's this plastic thing in there and if you stick the whole lot in, it's going to melt and ruin the whole lot. Um, but they're actually in there for a really good reason, that they take the moisture out of inside the packet. A while ago, uh, my guitar I had it at home in a case, hadn't taken it out for a while, and I took it out, and there was this water all over it. I'd just been collecting moisture, and, and the solution was to stick a whole heap of these kind of little silica gel packets in my guitar case. Because then what happens is, as moisture's in the air, and it kind of collects, rather than sitting on the surface of the guitar and ruining it, these moisture packets just suck all the moisture out of the air throughout the whole case. They, they absorb all this moisture themselves so that it doesn't ruin the guitar. Jesus, when he died on that cross, absorbed death for you and for me. His death was sufficient for everyone, for the whole world. He died in our place so that we need not face the consequences of death. And in doing that, he destroyed the power of death, the devil. See, what does the accuser do? He says, this one's mine. This one's sinned. He deserves death. That's what he wants to do. He wants to call it out about you on that final day. But if you trust in Jesus, God looks and says, yes, they do. But that death has been absorbed in my son. He has no more power. He's nothing he can do about it. While we deserve death for rejecting God, Jesus has taken it for us. He's absorbed the full amount of what that is. Verse 17. Therefore, Jesus had to be like his brothers in every way so he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of people. That's the P word that's hard to work out how you say it. You say it the awkward way. Uh, Propitiation. What does it mean? Propitiation is kind of dealing with both the penalty and the full relational effect of wronging someone. So I've used this illustration before, uh, but imagine for a moment you've got a car. Let's say you know it's something you've saved up all your life for. You know, so far it's your pride and joy. It's, it's the best thing you've got. You know, you've parked it outside. You're proud of it. You know, you're not too proud, but you're, you're proud of it. And you know, oh, I like my car. It's pretty cool. It's not. It's neat. It's tidy. You know, it's, it, I look after it. Now let's just say, because I'm kind of generous, warm-hearted, fun-loving guy that I am, I, after church, I go out the front where you've got it parked, kind of, you know, just to the side, being that little bay out the front so everyone can see it. But, you know, it's parked there, and I go out and I write on the side with my key, Jesus loves you. That's pretty cool, right? Now, I'd imagine if I did that, you would be like, there's a problem with our relationship, Rowan. 
Like, what are you doing? Who does that? What sort of tool goes out and just scratches in someone's car with their key? Something like that. Now, now imagine for a moment, I was like, yeah, right. And so what I did was I went and got some spray paint and I got it all fixed. So your car was back to shiny new. And I fixed everything about the car. Would we still be okay? My gut is no. You're like, still, who does that? Really? Like, what is wrong with you? Like, if I've never even apologised or said sorry or anything like that, I might have righted the wrong. It might be dealt with in the penalty that that I deserve to make it right. But relationally, we're not good. (laughs) We're not good until I come and apologise and actually say to you, look, I shouldn't have done this. And at that point, you can accept my apology or not. You can still say, you're a tool, get lost. I don't want you in my life. What Jesus did at the cross is he paid the penalty for our death. And he absorbed not only that penalty, but God's complete anger toward us. It was poured out on Jesus, sucked up like the moisture in the air into those slick gels. That's what propitiation is talking about. The reason Jesus had to be human was so that he could do it in our place. He could be the one who dies as a human, who sucks the full penalty on humans for rebelling against God and who restores that relationship for those who trust in him. And verse 18, since he himself was tested and has suffered, he is able to help those who are tested. Jesus became human to face what we humans couldn't face. And to do what we couldn't do, to live a perfect life. And he offered the perfect life that he did live to God as our substitute. Here's the amazing thing. This Jesus, the one who last week we saw was fully God, the man who was fully God in every way. You meet him, you meet God. This week we see he's fully man. And more than that, he's happy to call you and me his brothers and sisters. See that 2 verse 11. He is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Let me tell you why this is important to understand. I remember as a kid being ashamed of my dad. I love my dad. Um, My dad's great. I love him with all my heart. But there are just moments that dads have where you're kind of ashamed of them, especially when you're in public. I don't know if you share any of those. Uh, My dad, um, he would kind of be in conversations with people, strangers, and he just kind of keep going in the conversation. You know, when someone's in a conversation and you're kind of on the side and you've worked out that everyone else wants to get out except for your dad, it's just really awkward. You can see them like trying to take exits and he just keeps on talking and talking. You know, this is really awkward. I'm, I'm ashamed, Dad. Like, just get out. Like, stop talking. I don't know. Maybe that's where I get it from. But um, <laughs> there are times where I was like, oh, Dad, it's just weird, Right? Now, I'm sure there were times that Dad was ashamed of me as well. Times that I didn't act as I should have, that brought shame on his family name. Times that he had to speak to the principal of school and explain why the son that he brought up was suspended from school for the second time. Uh, Why I shot an air rifle at a blackboard. And now I, I did. But here's the thing. Jesus is never ashamed of us. The perfect Son of God is never ashamed, but is happy to call us His brothers and sisters. There are times 
that we're ashamed of one another, but not Jesus. He's proud to call you his brother or sister. Last week, we saw that in Jesus, you couldn't get any closer to God. This week, we see that he couldn't get any closer to us. He experienced exactly what we experience. He shared flesh and blood. He's not locked up in heaven behind some little portal looking out and going, oh, look at all those humans down there, right? It doesn't happen like that. He gets his hands dirty. He's involved with creation. He comes and dies in our place. He experienced the pains of life. He knows what it's like to be tempted, to face Satan, to have Satan hum strings that he would love to follow through on. Now, don't think for one second that Jesus wasn't tempted. In Matthew 4, we see Satan pull him out and stand him on top of a mountain. What's Jesus come to do? He's come to bring in the kingdom of God, to be the kingdom, to be the king of of God's kingdom. Satan, who is the ruler of this world, stands him on top of a mountain and says, all of this can be yours, Jesus. You don't have to die for anyone. You don't have to face God's wrath in their place. All of this will be yours if you just bow down to me. Jesus knew what he was about to face. He knew the pain he was about to go through. If there was one string to make vibrate, surely that was it. Become king of the world without going through the pain that I know I need to face. And oh, is there ever a pain greater than that? But he did not give in. He did not listen to the liar, but trusted his father who is good from the beginning. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer to be tempted, to go through pain, to have his body ripped apart, to be nailed to a cross, to have the whole world reject him and rather let a a criminal go free than the one who created and sustains the universe. Are you feeling rejected? Jesus knows how you feel. Are you feeling tired? (laughs) He's been there too. Are you full of grief? He understands you. Before Jesus came and became man, you might have been able to say that there is no one who understands me, but not anymore. For he has walked in your place. He has faced your death. When we pray to Jesus as our high priest, that is the the mediator between us and God, we pray to someone who's experienced what we have in every way being where I've been, felt where I've felt. He gets us. He really gets us. What does this achieve? Friends, the only way to have an optimistic view of the future is to recognize the one who faced the future that we deserved in our place for us. That's how Satan is defeated, how death is defeated. That's how this spiritual battle that we're amidst is won. Can can Satan still tempt us? Yes, absolutely. He has a time to prowl around and roar out his lies and try and bring people with him, but the battle's been won, it's finished. We know the score, it's just at the moment we're in half time. Can Satan still harm us? Yes. He can. But remember, the flesh and blood is nothing compared to an eternity when that is secure. Can life still hurt us? Can health still fail us? Yes. Yes, it can. But when death is defeated and eternity is on offer, 
well, it pales into insignificance. If we hold fast to Jesus, if we trust in Him, then our future is bright, brighter than anything we have ever seen. And if anyone gets this, apart from the writer of the Hebrews, it's the Apostle Paul. It's a guy who gets this with such clarity in Romans 8. We're going to read through a bit of a chunk in Romans 8, because it is just, you'll see, this is exactly what he's talking about. Have a look at this, Romans 8, 31. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? I know, it's Satan. But because of the work of Jesus, He can't condemn us anymore because death has been absorbed. Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, has been raised and also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than victorious through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that not even death or life or angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or depth or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As you look to the future and you're tempted to be optimistic or pessimistic, the only hope we can have with certainty is the hope that has already happened, that Jesus defeated death in our place. Death has been defeated. In Jesus, we have a brother, a perfect brother, who knows what it's like to be tempted, to suffer and struggle and experience pain and grief and sorrow. In Jesus, we have a brother who faced death in our place. He took our death for us. So we might be forgiven. In Jesus, we have a great high priest, a mediator between us and God, who sits at the right hand of God, who has been given all authority, who knows us intimately and has died in our place. And He intercedes for us. And as Satan screams out his accusations, sinner, rejecter of God, he listened to me, not you. He's mine. God doesn't doubt the sin, but he looks to the sacrifice of Jesus and recognizes that in him the penalty is absorbed. True, he can say to Satan, but that one belongs to Jesus, for his life is in his hands. Friends, if we have put our life in the hands of Jesus, if we trust in Him, in His death in our place, and He is the ruler of our lives, if we, like 3 verse 6 says, hold on to the courage and the confidence of our hope, then we have a secure future like nothing else. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Can affliction? No. Anguish? No. Persecution? No. Famine? 
nakedness, danger, sword. What, what can take away our future? What is there that can take away an eternity that has been offered to us in Jesus? Nothing. And so, like Paul, we stand able to be put to death all day long, to be used for God's purposes, to be counted as sheep to the slaughter so that people might hear the truth of Jesus. So stand firm to the end, won't you? Live your life recognizing that in Jesus, death has been absorbed. There is no fear of death anymore. (laughs) It's finished. Live your life in such a way that we can be used by God in every area to serve Him. This life is but a blink of an eye, yet we live for Him. He is not ashamed to call you His own. So isn't it time we stop being ashamed of Him? He is our King. He is our Saviour. He has suffered death in our place and freed us to live for Him. Let us stand in this world serving Jesus, knowing that our future is secure and live for Him. Let's pray.